Good morning. I am Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM. Today, we're so pleased and proud to have Mr. Ron Fierstein, the CEO of RF Entertainment and the author of A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid in the Kodak Patent War, as our in-studio guest. Ron, welcome to the program, and thank you for interrupting your very busy schedule today and joining us to share your thoughts and insights on leadership, but most important to talk about your new book, A Triumph of Genius by uh, Edwin Land, Polaroid in the Kodak Patent War. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Ron, before we jump into your, your book, can you share with our audience the highlights of your career, your education career and experience? Sure. I, I've had a, an unusual career, I think. Uh, some would say I can't hold a job, but I've made a, a lot of career transitions. Um, I, I, as a young man, I was a musician, and uh, I fell in love with the entertainment business and decided that uh, when I didn't have, I realized I didn't have enough talent, perhaps, to make a career as an entertainer. I wanted to get into the business side and decided to uh, go to law school to get some kind of background to go with my creative background uh, to take into the entertainment business. Um, I went to Brooklyn Law School, and but uh, for that purpose. And interestingly, though, I went after having spent five years after college on the road with my band playing music. So I was a little older than your average student. Um, and maybe for that reason, and because I was motivated at that point, maybe a little more mature than I had been in college, where I was mostly interested in playing music rather than studying, um, I took law school pretty seriously and ended up on law review. And what happened was, at the end of the process, when I was getting ready to graduate, I saw all of my friends at law review taking these big money jobs on, uh, in New York at, and um, at these fancy law firms. And it sort of occurred to me, well, gee, maybe I should take one of those jobs for a while just to make a few bucks um, before going back into the entertainment business. So I did, and I uh, looked for a job at an intellectual property law firm um, on the theory that I'd perhaps do some copyrights and trademarks, which would be relevant to the entertainment uh, entertainment career. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a job at a firm called Fish and Eve, which... Um, according to my research, was the most prominent intellectual property firm in New York. But, of course, I was naive, and it turned out that Fish and Eve did mostly patent work and not copyright or trademark work. And it ter also turned out that I, uh, they were interested in me because I had a science background. I had gone to a science high school in New York City, Stuyvesant High School, and uh, when I went to Stony Brook, this, um, at the time it was SUNY Stony Brook, and now I think they now call it Stony Brook University, um, I majored in biology. And in the patent field, law firms like to get law uh, lawyers who have a background in some aspect of technology, whether it's engineering or one of the sciences, because the subject matter of the lawsuits are often you know, technical, and it really helps if you have a background in the, in the field. So uh, I ended up at this law firm and worked there for a number of years, had a wonderful experience, including uh, the experience that is a good part of my book, um, which was the Polaroid Kodak patent litigation. Um, but when the case was over and um, I was done with uh, all of the post-trial briefs and so on, I did, in fact, uh, 
retire from the pat- from the practice of law and start my career in the entertainment business. Uh, and I started a company to uh, discover and develop recording artists, um, which uh, I did for about 25 years. And, and um, in addition, my brother, who uh, is a playwright and an actor, his um, uh, career uh, really took off around the same time that I... Uh, started my music company, and I've always looked after all of his legal and business affairs, and I still do to this day. Um, so I've practiced law, and I've been an, an executive in the entertainment business, and um, and now I'm an author, so that's why I said at the beginning that maybe I can't keep a job, but it's been an interesting and diverse course. That is awesome. And um, so what does RF Entertainment do? Well, RF Entertainment just stand, uh, basically my initials are Ron Fierstein Entertainment, and at, at this point, um, since I have retired from the music business, I, I I started shuttering my music business in the post Napster era. Um, you know, the the advent of digital delivery of music really had a major impact on the music business, and it changed very much the business model. Um, in particular, it really had uh, the impact of digital delivery um, varied from genre to genre of music, actually, and I don't know, maybe we're getting a, f- a far field here, but uh, in, in certain genres of music, like jam bands, for example, going back to the Grateful Dead and maybe more contemporary jam bands like the Dave Matthews Band, um, the new business model worked, and because the new business model became give your music away and sell tickets and t-shirts. Right, you know? right. And um, that was always the Grateful Dead business model. They never really cared how many albums they sold. They they wanted to sell tickets and T-shirts. In fact, they allowed. They were famous for allowing their audience to tape their shows. That's right. That's um, right. Because they didn't really care about that. Their, their money was in tickets and T-shirts. And, and when I say T-shirts, I mean merchandise generally. Yeah, of course, of and, course. And of, and that business model um, works for other genres. Uh, the the legendary rock bands, you know, the U2s of the world and the, and the Rolling Stones, and the, um, that business model works. But I was in the singer-songwriter genre, and I worked with artists like Suzanne Vega and Sean Colvin and Mary Chapin Carpenter and mm-hmm. Dar Williams. And for those kinds of artists, the, the new business model really was a struggle because they required income from all of these income streams, um, the sale of records, which also entailed publishing royalties because they were singer-songwriters, um, as well as touring and merchandise was really a very small component of their business model. Right, you didn't and see folks wearing uh, T-shirts. Not very much. I mean, hey, I interestingly enough, <laughs> in that genre, we would tour and sell merchandise as a promotional activity to sell records. So, in other words, you, you, sometimes you would design a concert tour that would hit 30 or 35 markets and design it just to break even, because the point of the tour was to get into 30 to 35 markets where you could promote your record and sell CDs and generate publishing income and all of that. And under this new model, you know, the post-Napster era where music sort of became free, um, it it really didn't work very well. And so I decided that it was time for me to, uh, I had had a great career, 25 years of doing it, um, and I decided it was just getting a little too frustrating and life is too short. So 
so I, 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 I set about closing down my music business, which I did, but um, I have been in business with my brother since the 70s, and, um, and so I knew that I was going to continue to look after his uh, business and legal interests, and that's what RF Entertainment does to this day. Um, he's got uh, shows on Broadway. He's got musical properties that I administer around the world, La Caja Foles, Torch Song Trilogy. Congratulations. We have, uh, wow. I'm a uh, co-producer right now of, the, of, of his current hit show that he wrote with Cindy Lauper called Kinky Boots, which is on Broadway. And if any of your listeners have not seen Kinky Boots, uh, they should go right out to Broadway and, and see it because it really will change your life. Okay, so you know, Rod, I There's just my put the, <laughs> I just put the co- I just put the connection together. Awesome! <laughs> All right, excellent. That is excellent. Uh, I, I think he's a fabulous person and a fabulous talent. And um, yeah, so please, everyone, go see Kinky Amen. Boots because it is phenomenal. And uh, my daughter's former uh, acting teacher, Dan, is uh, in in Kinky Boots. So. Is he, uh, real, is he our factory worker, our heavyset factory worker? Yep, yep. Wow, that's yep. hilarious. That's He's right. tremendous, Dan. That's right, that's right. You also see Dan in commercials on TV all the time. In commercials, you'll see him on Law and & Order um, mm-hmm. and a number of things. He's a very, very busy, active guy. He was teaching at the time at Performer Theater's Workshop, which is based here in uh, Maplewood, New Jersey, next to South Orange. Uh-huh. But... You know what? We're going to have to have do another show ab- okay. about the entertainment side. But let's talk about your, your 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 new book because a triumph of genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid in the Kodak Patent War. How did this book come about? I mean, it's 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 a very in depth read. It's it's a business case study on steroids. It's very riveting. Uh, some sound information, Ron. How did you come about to uh, to write this book? Well. You know, I've, I've told you the story of how he ended up at this law firm, and before you know it, I was assigned to this case, which was Polaroid suing Eastman Kodak for infringement of uh, patents that uh, had to do with the technology in Polaroid's latest instant photography camera and film combination. And, and this is the, the, the one that people are familiar with, where you, you snap the shutter, the film unit comes out of the camera and develops right in your hand and in front in the light and uh, earlier Polaroid systems required you to time the development and peel apart the film unit and sometimes coat it with a chemical to preserve That's it. That's right. So I, re- I remember those little uh, it looked like it looked like a liquid eraser. It was like the color of an eraser and it had that gooey stuff on it. Exactly. And that was the print coder that that um, stabilized the image. But the SX-70, which came out in 1972, eliminated all of that for the first time. And um, it's, at the, when Kodak came out with a competing system in 1976, it turned out that they used some of Polaroid's patented technology, and so Polaroid had to sue Kodak um, to protect itself. And Interestingly, I, I got involved in the case, and after a short period of time, well, actually maybe a couple of years, I found myself assigned to working with um, the founder of Polaroid, a fellow by the name of Edwin Land. Now, if any of you listeners have ever had a Polaroid camera, if they look at it, they may have noticed this, it always says Polaroid Land Camera. That's right. And, and the film always says Polaroid Land Film. Mm-hmm. Well, until that time... It, which is, let's say, 1978. 
because the lawsuit was brought in 1976, and I joined it in 1978. Um, I never knew that land referred to a man. I thought it re- referred to the ground, you know, or something. I mean, I did too. <laughs> and it turned out that Land was the man who pioneered this technology, and he was our star witness in the lawsuit. He was the founder of Polaroid. But as I went further and further into this, and I was preparing him to be our star witness, I had to learn about his history and about his background, because that was going to be part of what we presented in court. Um, and the more I learned about him, the more wowed I was by what an amazing individual that I had never heard of. He died in 1991 with 535 patents to his name. That was third on the list of U.S. inventors behind only Thomas Edison and one of Edison's colleagues. Third on the list. We've all heard of Thomas Edison, but no one's ever heard of Edwin Land. How about that? Besides all of that, before he even started on photography, which was in 1943, when he was 19 years old, he dropped out of Harvard to, to do research to find a practical way to polarize light. Now, to, po- to, to polarize light simply means to take the glare out of bright light. And this is, physicists had known since the 17th century that things like big rock crystals could do that, could take the glare out of light. But no one had found a practical material that you could use in products to do that same thing. Land decided this was something that was worthwhile discovering, and he dropped out of Harvard to pursue that research. Um, ultimately, he did, when he was 19, solve this problem that had eluded physicists for hundreds of years and found a way to embed in a very thin piece of plastic uh, microscopic crystals that could polarize light. And so you have your polarizing sunglasses, right, that take the glare out. You have polarizing filters that, if you're a photographer, you might use to take the glare out of a scene. That thin polarizing material is used in a million products that you never even thought about. It's in your car windshields. It's in the LCD screens that you watch TV on. And this was an invention he made at the age of 19. And by the time he was 34, he had a company that was doing the equivalent of $200 million business in today's dollars. And this is before he even started on photography. That is awesome. So this was a giant of a man, um, and I could go on. He did, he did all kinds of work for the United States intelligence community because this polarizer material was created such a big splash in the 30s that he became he came to the attention of the uh, American intelligence community who were at that time girding up for World War II. Um, it, it turned out, I guess, in retrospect, that in World War I, America did not use its technological ability to great advantage. And there was some in the government um, and in technology and in commerce and business who were determined not to make that same mistake in World War II. And even though on the surface politicians were trying to keep us out of the war because I think American sentiment was against getting involved, there were those who knew it was going to be inevitable. We'd have to fight Hitler and, and get, in, get uh, and be in the war. And so there was an effort made to organize America's uh, technology technological community, both in academics and in industry, 
for that purpose. And Land got swept up into that. And it was the start of a career where he worked for seven American presidents in secret, um, starting with Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, um, Ford, Nixon and Ford. And um, all of it done in top secret and all of it something that really no one knew about um, until pretty recently. Um, he, he was responsible uh, for the U-2 spy plane, you mm. know, the famous U-2 spy plane yes. that uh, helped us spy on Russia and ultimately helped us spy on Cuba and helped us, you know, determine that uh, the Cubans had Russian missiles there. And he was responsible for the Polaris submarine, which uh, was the first submarine that uh, shot missiles from underwater and I could just go on and on, but he did all, and not that he invented all those things himself, but he was in charge of, he, it became a, what they called the land panel, and he was in charge of these programs and would pull talent and technology from various places to marshal these projects into existence. Wow. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Ron Firestein, who is the CEO of RFM Entertainment. We are discussing his awesome new book, titled A Triumph of Genius, Edward Land, Polaroid and the Kodak Patent War. So, wow. So when you, when you thought about writing this book, what was your primary objective? I mean, there's so much history that you are sharing uh, with the world through this book. Was that your primary objective, or did you yeah. just want to tell his story? Well, I just thought that he deserved to be known. You know, this, this. I mean, he he made a big impression on me. We worked together for a few years. Obviously, we won this lawsuit. I, I you know, should have given an alert, but, but I think it's it's well known that Polaroid won the lawsuit, yes, yes. and um, it was a wonderful experience. And then I went off to the entertainment business, and I didn't look back at this world for another twenty years. But it, it, I, you know, let me put it this way: writing this book was sort of number one on my bucket list. And when I got out of the music business, I decided this is something I wanted to turn back to because I believed that he deserves to be a more prominent, uh, he deserves a more prominent place in the pantheon of great American technologists. How's that for a fancy phrase? How about that? <laughs> um, you know, he, he re, you know, here's another thing that people don't, well, some people know, but Steve Jobs, who we all know about, idolized land. And Steve Jobs modeled his career after Land. When, when you hear, just a few weeks ago, I heard Tim Cook, who has you know taken over for Steve Jobs and runs Apple these days. When he was introducing the new iPhone six and six plus, he made the statement that Apple's purpose in life is to give you products that you can even imagine. Right? That's their mantra. Well, this is a mantra that he inherited from Steve Jobs. But the truth is that Steve, ha Steve Jobs inherited that from Edwin Land. Wow. When Polaroid put out the SX-70 camera and film system in 1972, um, it was made public that they had spent $500 million on the research and development, all of which, by the way, came from profits. They never borrowed a cent Polaroid. It was such a successful company, they could fund their own research from their own profits. So journalists asked him, well, Dr. Land, how, how much market research did you do 
for spending that kind of money on a product that, you know, doesn't exist. He says, none. We didn't do any research. Our job is not to, to not, not to find out what people think they need. Our job is to give them things they can't even dream of. <laughs> and that, and in so many other parallels, Steve Jobs modeled his career after land. You know the way Steve Jobs, for example, was famous for conducting these demonstrations in front of uh, Apple shareholders? Yes. And every year, everybody would get very excited about what's the new product that they're going to introduce, and these were very highly publicized, well, you know, highly anticipated events. That is completely stolen from Edwin Land. That's what Edwin Land did back in the 70s, in the <laughs> 60s. Even. Every year he did the same thing, and in fact, there are, if you look at pictures, on the cover of my book is a picture of Dr. Land in 1972 on stage at the Polaroid shareholder meeting introducing SX-70, and he's sitting on an office chair, yes. and next to him is, is a uh, Saarinen table, yes. a small table. It's, I think it's called the tulip table. Yes, it has, well, some, if it you, has some water and fruit on there. <laughs> that's right. If you look at a picture, just Google Steve Jobs, and the picture will come up because it's a very famous picture. If you look for the picture of Steve Jobs in um, 2000, I forget the exact year, maybe 2006, introducing the iPad, he's sitting on an office chair with that same exact table next to him. <laughs> and it's no coincidence. Steve Jobs admitted it. He, he in the interviews, he, he often said that Land was his idol. And, and, uh, and so, you know, everybody knows Steve Jobs. Everybody knows Thomas Edison, but nobody knows Edwin Land. And I, I decided I wanted to try and set the record straight on that and, uh, and, and sat down and did the research to write this book. Well, we're going to change that around because I really want to do a lecture here at Seton Hall, if your schedule permits, and let the students just hear all of this great history uh, about uh, Mr. Land. This is, this is, this is phenomenal. And the, the, the title of the book is phenomenal. How did you come up with the title? Well, um, you know, the title is directly taken from the last sentence of the book. Um, it really, you know, because I do talk about uh, Land's use of the patent system. He, had a, he was always a small company competing against the big guys, and he relied on our patent system to protect uh, his company against um, you know, comp not against competition, but against wrongful competition by having others misappropriate the technology that he developed. And um, the, 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 the climax of all of that, of course, was this big litigation against Eastman Kodak, which Polaroid did prevail on. And to make the point that at the end of the day, this was proof of uh, Land's philosophy that the patent system... Uh, is necessary for the development of for innovation and for the development of technology because it's the only way that people uh, like him could protect their work. And so, at the end of the day, Polaroid's victory in that lawsuit was a triumph of genius. Wow! And how long did the, that case take from start to finish? F Fifteen years. Fifteen years. It, it was done in two parts. The first, when, it, it, very often in litigation of that sort. They first address the issue of liability. In other words, is the defendant liable? Um, did they, in fact, infringe the valid patents 
of the plaintiff. Um, and if the answer to that is yes, and they determine that, yes, the company is liable, then a second trial is held to determine the extent of the damages that the uh, infringer has to pay to the patentee. So uh, if you, the liability case was filed in 1976. It was tried in 1981 and 1982, and a decision finally came out in 1985. So that was nine years right there, and that's the part that I was involved in. By, by the time the decision came out, I was already in the entertainment business, but I was still a consultant to my old law firm because I had been so involved. And then once that decision came out, then uh, the whole damages uh, part of the litigation began, and that took until 1991. And uh, Mr. Land, you got to, to know him because of your interaction in the lawsuit. What was his, his management style? Um, that's a very interesting question. He he really, you know, again, look at Steve Jobs. I mean, although Land was a little more able, his company was smaller than Apple at the end of the day, and so he was able to really exercise more control over everything. But he was imperious. He was uh, a unique man who had a very singular vision and insisted that things uh, run according to his vision. Um, he he really, um, for example, and 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 this this was not necessarily the right thing. But when others at Polaroid wanted to diversify, um, because you have to remember, Polaroid was really a one technology company. They had instant photography, and that was it. Um, whereas Kodak, for example, had chemical businesses. They had paper manufacturing businesses. They had plastics manufacturing businesses. I mean, Kodak's biggest corporate customer were the cigarette manufacturers for whom they made the little plastic tubes that became cigarette filters. And that, So Kodak was a diversified company, but Polaroid never was, and mainly, mainly because Land insisted that it not um, be diversified. So uh, he really uh, uh, ruled that company with an iron fist, and um, at the end of the day, though he was the inspirational genius who uh, who led the company, and and so he was sort of, and any form founded it single handedly. I mean, he, he was, I guess, entitled to do so. Interestingly, many of his employees were scared to death of him. Um, he could be really difficult, you know. He's not. He, he didn't suffer fools at all, but he also didn't suffer some mortals either. <laughs> and uh, and it was very interesting from a, a legal point of view. I could see, you know, how the in-house lawyers at Polaroid were very often just afraid of him, and uh, they couldn't get answers. Um, and he would never, and he was a bit of a recluse. He wouldn't come to meetings and so on and so forth. So I was a bit nervous when I was assigned to work with him, but fortunately it worked out fine. He was really gracious to me, and um, we had we developed a good working relationship. Um, wow. Ron, believe it or not, we are almost at the end of our time, and we have okay. to have you back on the program. But tell us quickly, where can folks purchase your book? I know it's on Amazon.com. Yeah, I think it's uh, available through all of your normal sources. Um, uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Um, and uh, it's available as a hardcover, which I love. It's available as an e-book. It's even available as an audio book. Um, but I think, 
Um, I love the hardcover because I do have 62 illustrations in the book that help to depict various events and the various individuals and to explain some of the technology. Um, and I think those charts and diagrams and pictures are helpful for that. Wow. Well, that is awesome. So, Ron, we got to have you back on the program because 29 minutes is not enough to, to do your book justice. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are here with, with Mr. Ron Fierstein, CEO of RF Entertainment and author of A Triumph of Genius, Edward Land, Polaroid and Kodak, Patent War, as our in-studio guest. Ron, thank you for coming on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it up for this weekend. This is Darrell Gunter, your host of Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM, Seton Hall University, and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Remember, leadership begins with you. Have a great weekend.